0: Unlike me. Hello, and welcome once again to My Time Capsule. My name is Mike Fenton-Stevens, and in this podcast, I talk to various guests about the five things from their life that they would like to preserve in a time capsule. They pick four things that they cherish, but also one thing that they would like to get rid of, something they want to banish from their life, erase from their memory, bury in the ground, and never have to think about again. My guest this week is in one of the longest-running shows on radio, loved by millions of listeners across the globe. And yet, his voice is very rarely heard. Colin Sell is the pianist on I'm Sorry I Haven't a Clue and is as much a part of the show as the wonderful performers he accompanies. One song to the tune of another is part of British comedy history and his skill at playing for non-singers, often, who are not really sticking to the tune, is undeniable. Despite him being the constant brunt of jokes from the hosts over the years, Humphrey Littleton, of course, for many years, and now Jack Dee. In real life, Colin taught music at East 15, the acting school in Essex, from 1998 to 2015, and before that at Rose Brugford College. He was the musical director of Forbidden Broadway, the American hit musical satire, when it was performed in London at the Fortune Theatre. And in fact, I was in that. Very good it was too. Colin has composed and arranged for many radio and television productions and now often tours with his Clue co-star, Barry Cryer. But he's doing his own tour around the country at the moment, so do check out if he's coming near you. And then you can hide. Still, to get you in the mood, here is the great Colin Cell and the five things he wants to put in his time capsule. A one, a two, a one, two, three, four.
2: Hello, Mike hello my lovely man it's been a long long time god isn't it just well it was 1987 was it yeah yes i think it was yes and the funny thing is that here we are chatting now and last night i went to see rosie ash and paul knight performing no yes she does a one woman show at the moment about dora Bryan, called adorable dora and she's doing it just for one night down at the pizza express in chelsea And I went down to see it, and it's very good. And Paul Knight was just as brilliant as ever on the piano. Yeah. And he also had to chip in with bits of dialogue, which is quite funny too. And it was a good show, very good, Uh, (laughs) 75 minutes of pure joy. And I said to Paul Otto, "So the funny thing is, you know, these these things come in waves that you don't see people for years and years, and suddenly, within 24 hours, I'm seeing those two, and I'm seeing your good self as well.
0: Well, lovely, yes. And uh, Rosie still, after all these years, has the most amazing voice.
2: She does. She does. She used to call herself the killer soprano, and she can still break windows at 20 paces. There's no question about it.
0: It's amazing. I can't even throw something that far anymore. (laughs) (laughs) So what have you been up to? I cannot believe how many years Clue has been going.
2: Oh, well, yes, well, that's still going. We're just booking in Mm -hmm. for another tour. This time in the autumn, we're going to go to the venues, and the last two series we've only been able to record either remotely or at the... um, the radio theatre in Broadcasting House, which we did with everybody there but not the audience. The audience were all remote, so that that was quite interesting because it meant that all the laughs Mm. came about a second or so after you made the gag, you know. So (laughs) people weren't sure, was that funny? Oh, it was funny. Okay, good, that's all right. It was all a bit sweaty. (laughs) But uh, in the autumn we're hoping, unless something goes terribly wrong, to actually go um, round the country again with it, which would be good. Mm. And I've been doing the odd gig with Barry Cryer when they've allowed us out, you know.
0: When you did Clue and you had to do everybody on a different Zoom meeting, how on earth did you do one song to the tune of another?
2: Well, the thing was, I just had to anticipate. I just kept going. So everybody was singing about half a bar behind me. But actually, Mike, that's how the programme is anyway. (laughs) It wasn't really a big problem. I mean, this is bad enough. I mean, you and me trying not to tread on each other when we're speaking.
0: I think we should be all right. We should get away with it, I think.
2: Yes. When we did the, the, the lockdown version of Clue in our individual homes... They were using something called Clean Feed, Mm -hmm. whatever that is. I don't know. It sounds like something you put in your drain. Anyway, (laughs) and they said, oh, you have to use a Mac for this. I said, well, I haven't got a Mac. My wife has. Oh, I have to use pennies. I have to use your wife's Mac. So Penny had to do it all, and of course, I was completely lost because I don't use a Mac at all. Um, And so in the end, she was virtually playing the piano for me. (laughs) It got silly, you know.
0: Okay, well, let's have a go, shall we? Let's see what you've come up with, the five things you're going to put into a time capsule.
2: Yes, indeed. I think this is a great format. I think this is a wonderful idea to put things, particularly metaphorical things, experiences as well. Uh, And if I may, I'll start with an experience Mm -hmm. because... I suppose if I'm known for anything at all, it's, it's to do with music and comedy. And I do have a, a great liking for comedy songs. And I, I only wish sometimes the muse would settle on me and I could write more of them. But um, <laughs> my great thrill as a memory it was in 1963. My parents took me to see Michael Flanders and Donald Swann doing the second of their stage shows at the drop of another hat. And I had already um... heard at the drop of a hat. I heard the record of that. And um, we went to see at the drop of another hat. And it was just wonderful to see these two guys just sitting there, not moving around, no scenery, just a piano and two guys in dinner jackets, Michael Flanders in his wheelchair. And it was a fantastic experience. And I thought, yes, this is what I want to be involved in, if possible. Mm. Um, and uh, it's a great memory. And every time I go back to it, I have this wonderful sort of glow, you know. And then uh, if I could just perhaps rather naughtily, unite it with another related memory, which is that many years later, about 1979, I was hiked into the Lyric Theatre Hammersmith. They had a big gala night when they reopened the theatre. And Donald Swan was on the bill. Michael Flanders had already left us by then, but Donald Swan was on the bill. And I had tea with Donald Swan, he was absolutely oh. delightful and such a pleasure to talk to and not difficult to talk to. He wasn't at all starry or anything.
0: No, in fact, that was very much part of their act, wasn't it? It was. You felt really as if you were sitting in their parlour.
2: Absolutely. Yes, it was very clever. And I think that was very much done to Michael. Um, and Donald Swan said this. He said he, he said, I'm not funny. You know, he said, I let Michael do all the funny stuff. He said, and Michael knew that I wasn't funny and knew that I'm a good stooge. That's how the act worked, of course. You know, they just held the whole audience for two hours on that evening in 1963, and I I think I had to be carried out of the theatre. I was (laughs) so excited by the whole thing; it was great. It's wonderful, really, isn't it? Because almost
0: everybody adores their shows. Yes.
2: I often go back to their material if I'm looking for how to put together a funny song for something or other, because I you know, have to do funny songs at the piano sometimes if I'm doing a show with Barry Cryer or somebody. And they're a great source of inspiration. And and Donald Swan said that he said said, pianists, he said like him himself and included me as well, which I was very flattered. He said we do something called home pianism and home pianism is that kind of very gentle laid back easy to listen to stuff. And of Mm. course he wrote beautiful music, absolutely apposite music for Michael's impeccable lyrics. And they complemented each other so well. And it's something which, uh, you know, it's very difficult, I think to to emulate. I can't think of any other couple of performers who ever achieved exactly that, that sort of, uh, that quality. Yes. Wonderful lyrics. Brilliant. Um, I'm doing my one man show in, Tunbridge Wells, in a few weeks' time on the 30th of September. Ooh. And I do a couple of their songs because, well, A, I like them, and B, people sort of expect them. You're going to do a show about comedy songs. You've got to put them in there. And I do one this is well-known, and I do one which isn't well-known, and uh, I greatly, greatly enjoy doing them. They were once described, rather brilliantly, I thought, as uh, Falstaff doing duets with Hamlet. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's fantastic. Isn't it? Lovely description. <laughs> you don't quite understand how something like that works. From, you know, the early 60s, there it is, a stage show. And those records were around. But you still don't understand how it filters through society. For example, I was walking with my grandchildren and I never talk about anything else. I'm sorry, Colin. I talk about my grandchildren all the time.
2: Don't feel bad. It's all right. Yeah,
0: That's all right. Now, we're walking through very muddy, wet woodland near us. And, of course, I naturally started singing mud, mud, Glory, as And my grandson joined in. Oh, really? And I said, how do you know that song? Mm. He said, I don't know.
2: It's the Mud song, isn't it? Mm. Which I think is marvellous. Isn't it? It's, it's sort of like almost in mother's milk, isn't it? You wonder how he how yeah. would know about it. Yes. When I was teaching, uh, I used to teach in uh, drama colleges, uh, teaching music and singing, obviously. And I found that a lot of the students, and I was teaching sort of 18, 19, 20-year-olds, a lot of them knew if only a bit of, old music hall songs. Right. My old man said, follow the van or or, or pack up your troubles. And I'd say, again, how do you know that? Oh, I think I heard my grandparents sing it or something like that. Mm -hmm. But it obviously had stayed with them, which says a great deal for the songs themselves. There's something very, very catchy, presumably.
0: Yeah. When my children were teenagers, we used to go on holiday. And if we went on holiday, we always made a holiday tape. We were allowed to pick one song each. Mm. And I quite regularly picked a Flanders and Swan song. And as a result, they were always the ones we had to rewind and play again, which I think is lovely. <laughs> nice? So, yes. for example, my son probably still to this day knows all the words of the one about him having a French horn.
2: Yes, I wanted a horn and I had to obey it to buy a French horn. A yes, it's called Ill Wind. Ill Wind. Yes, and it's mm. it's uh, set to the rondo from Mo- one of Mozart's uh, horn concertos. Yeah. Yes. You see, that's the thing about them, irritating in a way, because if you do write funny songs yourself, Then they do something like that. They set a bit of Mozart and tell a very funny story in it. You say, oh, God, yes, if only I'd thought of that. What a Mm. brilliant idea.
0: Yes, like Tom Lehrer. Putting the chemical elements to, you know. Absolutely, yes. I mean, it's extraordinary to take a piece of uh,
2: Gilbert and Sullivan. Yes, and you set all the elements. And then, (laughs) not only that, but he, he remembers them all. You know, I get really nervous about forgetting words when I'm doing silly songs at the piano. I mean, Tom Lyra was amazing. He didn't even play the piano. He sort of attacked it, didn't he, really? Um, <laughs> and then he had this fantastic memory. You, know, you could do a whole evening and, not, and that particular song, is I mean, it's a nightmare. It's just a list. Mm-hmm. All songs that are lists, I used to tell my students this, all songs that are lists are dangerous. My Favourite Things is a very dangerous song because there's no mnemonic. There's no link for any of those. No. We get as far as whiskers on kittens and we tend to sort of die and forget the rest of it, you know. <laughs> This song's a very dangerous... And that one is is the archetypal one, isn't it? The Elements by Tom Lehrer. Absolutely. Mm,
0: Yeah, antimony, arsenic, aluminum, selenium. That's about as far as I can get.
2: That's more than I can do, yes. (laughs) I don't remember the last two lines. These are the only ones that have been discovered. There may be many others, but they haven't come to Harvard or something. That's right.
0: You also mentioned uh, My Favourite Things. That brings us to our connection, how we first met, mm. which is that I had to sing the Cameron Mackintosh song to the tune of My Favourite Things in Forbidden Broadway. Now, I can't remember any of the lyrics of that show. Isn't that strange? Yeah. yeah. The only lyrics I can remember is a song that I didn't sing, which was the Piss Take of Les Miserables, oh. which had the marvellous line, Come watch us wallow in the dirt, Then buy a souvenir and don it. Rich folks pay £20 a shirt that has a starving pauper on (laughs) it.
2: Yes. Gerard Alessandrini, he was the man, wasn't he? He was the director and put the thing together. Yes, he was very clever. I remember there's a lovely line and he did a a Stephen Sondheim send-up. and Stephen Sondheim said, yes, you can use Sending the Clowns, but you're not to change the tune at all, which we didn't. And I think you sang it, Mm -hmm. didn't you? I did, yes. At the end of Act One, no one is there. (laughs) It's very clever stuff.
0: Yes. Anyway, I think it's wonderful that comedy songs survive in that mm. way. I mean, I think there are a number of songs out there, a number of we don't they don't reach us, I think, probably the ones of today. I'm sure there are songs that people are listening to, young people are listening to that we don't know about that will become part of their culture, I think.
2: Whether the comedy songs are there or not, I don't mm. know. I suspect more that young people are listening to and watching stand-up I don't think comedy songs are quite so popular. They'll probably come back, actually, but I can't think who Mm. would be writing them and uh, what they would really be about.
0: Comedy shows used to have a comedy song in it. Yes. So, for example, which is why Ernie was a hit. Mm. Yes. And then you have all the Bernard Cribbins great songs. Yes, Yes. And you have a great history of it. Peter Sellers, I dare to say the Heebie-Jeebies. yes.
2: The heebie-jeebies are brilliant. And there you were. I bet you, can you still get up there?
0: (laughs) We've transposed
2: it. (laughs) (laughs) This is the trouble. You know, the um, the bootleg Beatles? Yeah. uh, The bootleg Beatles used to do all the Beatles stuff. um, And I don't think they're going anymore. But they said, we're getting too old. Our voices couldn't get up there. And we couldn't change the keys because everybody in the audience knew where the, even if they didn't understand music, they knew where the songs were pitched. Yes. So she loves you, had to be up there, yeah, all that stuff going on, you know. And if it yeah. was any lower, they would, you know, write in and complain. So you, <laughs> you do have my sympathy there. i tell you who was very good and I think rather underrated as a comedy songwriter was Bill Oddie. Really? Well, He used to yeah. write a comedy song each week for I'm Sorry, I'll Read That Again. And nine times out of ten, they were really on the money. He, he was brilliant at it. And there's no recording anywhere, as far as I can tell. There's, there's not a CD or anything to be had of his songs, which is a shame because some of them were very clever, very witty. Do they still have the
0: recordings of those
2: shows? Oh, yes. A lot of them are on BBC Sounds, yes. I I sometimes listen to them, yeah.
0: Because he was the one coming out of the footlights who everybody said, he's going to be the big star. And if you look at it, I suppose the goodies came along and they were huge. And then there's the songs he's written going into the charts, you know, Funky Gibbon and yes. So it looked for a long time as if he was going to be the one who would have the longevity. And ironically, it's Tim brooke taylor and Graham Garden because of Clue.
2: I think that's probably right, yes, because... I suppose, to be fair to Bill, he, he got involved very much in the in the sort of the bird-watching
0: kick, you know. But that's what he would be famous for now. Yes,
2: I think he would, yes. I agree with you about, about Tim and Graham, yes. And uh, yes. it's very, very sad. Of course, now we've lost Tim because yeah, thanks to COVID and the country not closing down in time, there we were doing a recording up in Huddersfield and most of us, including myself, came back with a bit of the COVID. But unfortunately, he got it in spades and that was that, mm. which is very, very oh, sad. God. I mean, Big loss,
0: very anyway. sad, yes.
2: And he was a lovely man too. I did enjoy working with him. He wasn't very happy singing, but he did it. He threw himself into it. Yeah. But every time he did his song, he got a big round of applause at the end, he would always turn around and indicate me at the piano, which was very, very kind. And You know, rather unnecessary, I thought, but it was very, very nice of him. Mm. He, he, had a, he had a bigger heart than he let on. He was quite a softy inside. He didn't like that impression to be given to anybody. He wanted people to think he's got a hard-nosed, you know, comedian and, and sort of businessman and out there doing his uh, doing his comedy stuff and taking it very seriously. But actually, he was delightful.
0: Isn't it funny? Because actually the whole nation knew that was the case because we listened to him every week. Yes. There oh, well. There we are. So I will take the wonderful Flanders and Swan. They're inside the time capsule as your first item. Whoopee. Lovely. Let's move on to number two.
2: Okay. Well, the second one I'd like to have purely for sentiment's sake is because I, I enjoyed working with him so much. I asked Willie Rushton one day if he would do a cartoon of me. because He was doing cartoons of people. And he was, even when we were recording, he'd always sit in there scribbling and drawing and stuff. He just did it all the time. And he did a cartoon of me. And um, I would like that to go in the time capsule. Mm. Not out of any sort of feelings of vanity or anything I was just very touched that he said, yes, he would do it. And the next week I saw him and he produced it and had done it. And it's me playing the piano with a pint of beer on the piano and um, <laughs> smoking my pipe. I used to smoke a pipe in those days. Um, and um, he was just lovely to work with. I still miss him. He died in 1996. Good Lord. Yes. People don't believe it was so long ago, but it was. But Because his personality was so big. And uh, his contributions to I'm sorry I haven't a clue, weren't very frequent. He didn't always say a great deal, but when he did say something, my goodness, it was really very, very witty. He had an amazing mm. ability to join up things and put ideas together and come out with something absolutely wonderful. And when he, when he died, Ned Sherin, being rather pompous himself, said, oh, Willie Rushton, he, he he didn't suffer fools gladly. And I don't think that was true, because I'm a fool and he, he suffered me. <laughs> we got on very well Indeed. <laughs> Because uh, I do a bit of sketching every now and again. He'd come in with a pen. Oh, Cole, try this pen. It's very good. You know, i am very flattered. You know, What he didn't like was pomp. He didn't like people being pompous and overbearing. And there's a lovely story about him. Um, he was about to give an after-dinner speech. And the dinner was taking place. It was a very, very posh company. He was sitting next to the very, very pompous CEO of the company. And this chap suddenly turned to Willie and said, I hope you're going to be funny tonight, Mr. Rush, and we're paying you a lot of money. And he said, well, most of it's for sitting with you. (laughs) That was Willie. I mean, very, very quick, you know, and he, and he, he hated rehearsing. So when he and Barry got together and decided to do a show, a live show, which they asked me to play for, which was wonderful. It was called Two Old Farts in the Night. This was back in about 1990, (laughs) 1991. And we took it around the country and it was great. And, um, but he didn't like to rehearse. So the only time he and Barry were on stage at the same time was at the very end of the show, when we used to do censored songs. You know, they'd have a bleeper and we'd take out, you know, I could have eh all night, I could have eh all night, that sort of thing, you know, mm-hmm. all very schoolboy stuff. But otherwise, <laughs> he just liked to go on and do his own shtick, you know. The trouble with him was that he, he, um, he wouldn't edit himself. So he'd go off on a tangent about something and he'd go on for hours. You couldn't really get him off. And he wasn't <laughs> being greedy or uncle. He just enjoyed being on and chatting to an audience, and they loved him. And the difficulty I have on stage is if so demanded, I have great difficulty keeping a straight face if I'm supposed to. If something very funny is happening, I'm, I corpse very easily. <laughs> um, and you, you may find this difficult to believe, Mike. <laughs> so he used to do a, a wonderful part of the act. He, he said, I'm now going to raise the tone of the show. I'm going to sing a song by Irving Berlin. I'm going to sing Top Hat, White Tie and Tails. Now he would Already he was dressed in the top hat and white tie and towels, looking very immaculate. But he would start taking them all off and putting them all on the grand piano and talking to the audience about Irving Berlin and so on and so forth. And he stripped right down to his vests and his shorts, and that was it. And, of course, the audience were in hysterics by then, wonderful sight, you know. And then he started singing the song. And the idea was, as he sang each item of clothing, he put it on. And Of course, what was very clever about it is, of course, you, they're not in the right order. So you end up putting the coat on first, putting you know the tails on first, and then the shirt afterwards. So he's tying the shirt around his neck with you know, and it's it's just absolute chaos. And of course, I'm trying to play the piano, and it, heaven knows how many times he did this, but I just was in hysterics, and <laughs> and then I had to really keep a straight face because he would then very angrily come round to the piano and lean over my shoulder, look at the music. He said, "Any mention of trousers?" <laughs> You'd think Irving Berlin, who lived to be a hundred, could have at least written in a line like, I'm putting on my trousers, you know, and, and Colin Sell is trying to keep us straight. It was very, very difficult. Uh, I bet. I miss him still. I bet you do. Yes. He, he used to say to the audience, I can't do I can't do jokes. I can't remember jokes. Old Barry, he could Baz, he used to talk about Barry Krause. Baz. Old Bazza, he can remember jokes. and I can't. He said I know perfectly well he says that the joke takes place in a pub and a travelling salesman <laughs> is talking to a gorilla. But where the charabang load of Belgian nuns comes into it, I can't possibly remember. <laughs> Already he, he'd made a joke anyway, just by sheer wordplay, yes. just an association of ideas. He had that ability, I think, that Peter Cook had. Peter Cook had just gone in front of an audience and just talked to them mm. and have them laughing within seconds and keep them laughing for ages. You know. And I think w- Willie had that as well. It was something to do, I think, maybe with that satire generation and private eye and all that, which, of course, Willie was, you know, he's one of the founders of. You just had to be quick-witted to stay alive, really. Mm-hmm. And I think it, it always sort of stayed with him.
0: Yes, in that crowd, get together and they would be competitively quick.
2: Yes, I think that's right. Yeah. I guess that's it. It's the, yes, the problem with competition, actually. If, you, if you're working with Peter Cook, yes, you couldn't be a wallflower. Otherwise, no. you wouldn't be working with him. You know,
0: Some people say that Rowan Atkinson that's owes his career to Peter Cook's improvisation because there's the famous Amnesty sketch where I think Rowan Atkinson was supposed to say, will this wind be so mighty as to lay low the mountains of the earth? And that's all he's supposed to say. Yes. And Peter Cook just won't let him say it. <laughs> and Rowan went, will this wind? <laughs> in was sort of Mr Bean voice. And Peter Cook said, will this wind? Yes, yes, will this wind what? Come on, get on with it. Will this wind? Yes, I've had will this wind. We've had will this wind. What's next? Be so mighty. Will this wind be so... And, and, and that's how it went for... And it's 10 minutes of the most extraordinarily funny improvisation.
2: Yes, it is. It's a brilliant sketch. <laughs> and I think there's a whole generation, I think, of which we're part, really, of, of people who've been involved in comedy who owe much of our tradition, really, to the likes of Willie and, and Peter Cook and so on. Mm. I think it has that edgy, that's an anarchic quality. And I think it, it would be it'd be a sad day if Clue were to lose too much of that anarchy. I think it works best, when, as Barry Cry says, it works best... When the wheels are coming off.
0: Yeah. Well, he, he's been on many a bus where that's happened. Yeah, yes, exactly. But he,
2: but he, because he can cope with it. Yeah. There's a wonderful moment when Barry, uh, who doesn't usually forget stuff, at, you know, he's 86 and his brain is functioning 100%. But some years ago, uh, we were doing a show and, um, and he was really on top of it. He was going very, very well, but he just forgot something. The joke is uh, very briefly, it's about uh, a, a man goes into a restaurant and he orders Aylesbury duck. And they bring him the Aylesbury duck and he gets his finger and he puts it up the duck's backside. He said, this is not an Aylesbury duck. He said, this is a Suffolk duck. I want an Aylesbury duck. Send it back to the kitchen. <laughs> and um, kitchen, are the furious, they send another duck out. Finger, duck's back. No, this is a Norfolk duck. Please get it right. <laughs> All jokes come in threes, don't they? This is a three-parter. Mm-hmm. So then there comes out another duck and he puts his finger up the backside and he says, oh, yes, he said, this is an Aylesbury duck. Wonderful. It's the best Aylesbury duck I've ever tasted. Bring me the chef. I'd like to congratulate him. So the chef comes out, still furious. And he comes, anyway, they do chat for a bit. And the, the chap says to the chef, he said, Tell me, he says, where are you from? And the chef dropped his trousers and bent over. He said, You're the expert. You tell me. <laughs> so that was a joke. So he's uh, telling his joke one night as a, as a series of jokes. And he starts telling it. And he doesn't do the action with the finger and the duck's backside. Now, one of the things I have learned, and I'm sure you've learned it as well, is don't tell a comedian how to tell a joke. Mm. Because it's a good way to die, isn't it, really, Mike? It's a good way to get your throat cut. You know? So I thought, no, I won't say anything, because Barry and I never had a crossword, but it may be that he's found a new way to tell this joke, which he hasn't told me about, and therefore I won't say anything at all. So I just sit there. But no, sure enough, he went through the whole of the gag and got to the end, and the chef dropped his trousers and bent over and said, you're the expert, you tell me. And the audience went, wow. like you're doing now, yeah. nothing. The pianist, however, was falling off his piano still laughing. <laughs> Barry said, what? what? I said, well, you told the whole joke, Baz. I said, without doing the action with the finger up the duck's backside. And thereupon, he started to laugh. And then the audience got it. They could see the element that was missing. And so they got the joke in bits, in sections, and they started to laugh. And it was a good example, as Barry says of the audience loving it when the wheels come off because they could see what had gone wrong. Mm. They could see how I had sort of prompted him. And it became a massive, massive laugh, bigger than the joke would normally get.
0: Yes. Sometimes those things are inadvertent. I once spent an evening in a cricket club in Oswestry and um, the host of the show was a man called Fred Wildegoose, which is a great stage name. Yes! <laughs> but he'd never been on a stage, I don't think. And he tried to tell a joke and... Did that thing of saying so a man goes into a oh no sorry two men go into a pub oh no not a pub a restaurant and and the entire joke was like that for about 10 minutes and I have never laughed so much in my life at a joke <laughs> it was a completely unfunny joke but by the time he was he'd got to five minutes in and then said oh no sorry his wife was
2: I forgot his wife's with <laughs> I, I just screamed with laughter It reminds me of the story about Alec Guinness, who was a a, a big fan of the Two Ronnies. And there was some big celebratory do for the Two Ronnies, and Alec Guinness said, oh, I'd like to tell a Two Ronnies joke. (laughs) And the joke is um, something about uh, uh, criminals falling into a a bucket of cement and uh, the police are looking for two hardened criminals. Yes. (laughs) So he starts telling his joke about criminals, yes, uh, falling into a bucket of quick-drying cement and the police are looking for two... Criminals covered in cement.
0: <laughs> and that's why he was a great, serious actor.
2: Exactly. <laughs> yes. What do we learn from this? Yes.
0: <laughs> well, I'm definitely going to put that lovely sketch of, of you, done by Willie Rushton. Yes. That's your second item. You see, I do listen. You didn't write
2: anything down. I was no? very impressed.
0: Okay, time for the advertising interlude. Yeah, unfortunately, I can't get Colin to play some incidental music over it as I have no real control over this bit, but I'll be back in, as they say, on Clue, and Nat's Crotchet. Welcome back. That was one hell of a gnat. Right, let's get back to Colin cell. and the next thing he wants to put in his time capsule.
2: The next thing I would take, or put in the capsule anyway, would be um, a big poster, film poster. I don't collect posters of film or theatre particularly, but I do have a poster of this because there's a poster of a silent film made in 1927 called Napoleon. Mm. And uh, it was directed by a Frenchman called Abel Gance, or if you're French, Abel Gance. And I've seen it three times. It's an astounding film because not as it very well made. It's seven hours long. And in those days, you either made very, very short comedy films that were about sort of 10 minutes each, or you made massive, great, long saga epic things Mm. and this was one of the saga epics it's seven hours long and when they they, they've shown it three times now i think at the royal festival hall with breaks you have to have obviously you have to have breaks in it including a little supper break in the middle but they've done it with live orchestral accompaniment and it's carl davis's brilliant score for it with full orchestra and it must be so exhausting for him to conduct even though there are breaks i mean he's got to stand and wave his baton around you know and make it fit with the film which is always a difficult thing to do Mm. and uh it's, it's brilliant. It's a wonderful film and it's a great night out. And I've seen, it, I've seen it three times and I just had to have a poster. And the most amazing thing is just when you think you've had this wonderful film and it can go no further, it opens out, Mike, onto three screens. <laughs> you have to have three screens. And so you've got the main story in the middle and the last 20 minutes is suddenly spreads out and you've got this, this massive great battle scene. Mm. And it, it is just oh, jaw-dropping. And as a result of uh, my interest in silent films, I, I used to use silent film quite a lot when I was teaching students, doing music and singing with students, because I wanted to show them how music and theatre work together. And in those days, when I was doing this, mainly sort of in the 80s and 90s and the, uh, and the noughties, um, there wasn't very much on DVD then, which you could show, which showed theatre and music, a lot of film music, not theatre and music. Mm. So I used to use film a lot. And so as a result, I got very, very interested in the film, but I also got into playing music for silent films, which I greatly enjoy doing. Wow. I do it for um, uh, the Kennington Bioscope uh, down at, uh, at Kennington, would you believe? Um, <laughs> and I've done it on various other occasions as well. Um, and sometimes you get a chance to see the film beforehand and sometimes you don't, and you just have to sort of throw yourself into it. And you have to come up with something. And this is where I suppose having a background in different sorts of light music and being a bit of a jazzer as well is quite helpful because I can... I can usually find something after which you think, oh, because I've done that better, of course, you know, as you always do. Mm. Um, but it, uh, it is something I, I really do enjoy doing. <laughs> there are, however, there are some, um, some traps <laughs> when you haven't seen the film before. And suddenly the intertitle comes up on the screen and it says, and then they played the Romanian national anthem. God, no, you know, <laughs> there's no way that I, you know, I come from South Croydon. We don't learn the Romanian national anthem. No, Um <laughs> So you have to you have to busk something, you know, and, you know, as sure as God made little green apples that somebody's going to come up to you afterwards and say, that's not the Romanian national anthem, you know, (laughs) because there's always somebody out there who knows better than you. But I do. I do enjoy doing it. And on a on a on a good night, it's it's great fun. That's why when I do my, my my one man show, the last 20 minutes is a 20 minute bus to Keaton comedy film and I play for that.
0: Oh, how brilliant.
2: We may well say well, that's easy for you to do because you would have seen it before and yes, I have seen it before. But the thing about the film is there's a long whirlwind sequence in the middle which is just cuz you you know, you <laughs> you just have to come up with something, you've got to play something for this, you know, <laughs> and each time I do it I think, oh no, it goes on even longer than I thought, you know. Um but it's great fun and it's a very funny film and I do enjoy doing it. I think silent film musicians were very interesting because silent films themselves Of course, up until 1927, when sound starts to creep in, though very, very slowly, because sound equipment was was complicated and expensive to put into into cinemas. And also, Mm. a lot of people just preferred silent films anyway. So it was a lot of work for local musicians. And of Mm. course, where I live here, I live in Stone Newington in Hackney, and between Dalston and Wood Green, a friend of mine, who was a bit of a silent film buff, he tells me there were about 20 cinemas just between Dalston and Wood Green. Even in the 1950s and 60s. Yeah. And of course, that was a lot of work for musicians. You might only have one pianist in the pit playing for a film, but you might have three or four. And everybody, each cinema had a sort of little collection of bits of music they could have, you know, for a romantic scene or a horror scene or a chase scene or whatever, you know. But sometimes, you, you know, the musicians or the musician had to make it up as they went along. And of course, it meant that the experience of the audience would differ. Now, if you and I go and see a film, Mm. on separate nights in separate cinemas, we have roughly the same experience because we're going to see and hear exactly the same thing coming from that screen. Yeah. But With live music in the silent era, they would play the films through to the musicians first thing on a Monday morning and the musicians would sit there and think, okay, fine, oh, a bit of chase here, yeah, a bit of a love scene here, yes, um, comedy slapstick here and so on, and they get a bit of music together, which meant that the first couple of days maybe it would be a bit rough and a bit, you know, so if you went to see it, you wouldn't really get a lot of help from the musicians <laughs> so qualitatively, your experience wouldn't be very good. Whereas by the end of the week, the guys had nailed it. They'd really got it, you know, and you'd have a much better experience if you went to see the films on a Friday night or a Saturday. How
0: extraordinary. Yeah, what a brilliant thing! So, if you knew that, if you'd work that out, and you wanted the proper experience, you'd book for a Saturday night.
2: Yes, you, I mean people went anyway because they liked it and it was cheap. But yes. actually, you've you got a much better experience if you were really into the film and or story. if you
0: wanted a laugh, you'd go on the Monday night. And at the end of the death scene, you'd hear the pianist play da da Exactly. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So <laughs> yeah. That would be very funny.
2: So anyway, so I do, I do enjoy doing that, and uh, I've I've done some online. That's one of the few things I have done online, and mm. I've, I've enjoyed doing that actually. Um, and that's how you finish
0: your show, is it? Your show, you're doing. At the moment the tour
2: yeah yes yeah in the second half of the show i do yet more songs and more stories and ha 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 we all go i hope and at the end (laughs) i think you know the cherry on the cake is buster keaton being very funny
0: oh brilliant oh i look forward to seeing it yes i have seen uh, napoleon done in the seven hours have you yes but at the edinburgh festival it is extraordinary it's a long time isn't it seven hours it is yes
2: I assume you had breaks.
0: We did have breaks, yes. Yes, but it started first thing in the morning. And, of course, having been in Edinburgh, anything that started first thing in the morning meant that you really hadn't had much sleep. (laughs) (laughs) But it was amazing. In my mind, that bit where it splits into three things, maybe they treated the film when I saw it, but in my mind it went red, white and blue, the French flag.
2: I don't think it does initially, but it might do at some Mm. point, yeah, because... Quite often they would, they would put filters onto film. Yeah. So you would get, yeah, they couldn't always do, you know, obviously individual sections of colouring. That was a very expensive and very long-winded process. But they could put a filter on the camera. But mm. often for night scenes, you get everything done in a dark blue. Yes,
0: with an amazing amount of shadow in the background. Yeah, yes. Always. I love those films where you, it's, it's deep in the middle of the night and you can see this very bold shadow. That's a hell of a moon.
2: It's like even now today you see films, don't you, where it's raining in the film and actually you can see bright sunshine in the background. Yes, quite. Shouldn't there be a rainbow somewhere?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, I'm going to put Napoleon, all seven hours of it, with full orchestra. Yes, please. By Abel Gonce. I went in through the French windows, or as the French call them, windows. (laughs) (laughs) Lovely. Lovely. Very good. You're welcome. Right, let's move on to item number four.
2: Um... Well, 100 years ago, I went to university and uh, I was reading Spanish and Latin American studies and uh, I did enjoy it. I I have to say at the same (laughs) same time, I was doing an awful lot of music uh, for student reviews and student plays. So I didn't perhaps work as hard as I might have done. And one of the things I was supposed to have done while I was there was to read the whole of both books of Don Quixote Mm. in Spanish. Um, And I'm afraid I didn't. Uh, I managed to avoid answering a question on Don Quixote in the exams. But I thought this is something I really owe to my uh, Spanish tutors and so on. <laughs> so about a year ago, I managed to finish reading the whole of it in Spanish. I had been reading other things at the same time, so it took me a couple of years to do it. But I, I did enjoy it, and I did read all, every word of it in Spanish. And therefore, I would take with me my now much-thumbed copy of Don Quixote in Spanish. So 50 years late, but nevertheless, <laughs> I got it done. And, uh, Where did you study that? At Bristol, Bristol University. Ah. Um, and I had a lovely time in Bristol because it was very lively at the time for review and doing drama and so on. And then we started taking shows up to the Edinburgh Fringe. And I went out with that. And that, from that, I got I'm sorry, I haven't a clue. Mm. I'd been up there, I did about two or three years up there. And I got a phone call one day from Simon Brett, who at the time was a radio for light entertainment producer. Uh, and then went on to write for radio and write thrillers and all sorts of things. He's you know prolific, really. Mm. And he said, I've seen and heard what you do. Uh, I haven't got anything for you at all, but um, I just thought you ought to know I know about you. <laughs> and then he, a couple of weeks later after that, he phoned me up and he said, I've been given this show to take over, and the pianist has, uh, has had to leave, and uh, it was called I'm Sorry I Haven't a Clue. Mm-hmm. And I was working with Graham Garden and Timbrook Taylor, Willie Rushton, Barry Cryer. Shared by Humphrey Littleton. I mean, I was just terrified, Mike. Mm. And I terrify easily. (laughs) And uh, anyway, I think the the first recording, I don't think, I hardly touched the keys. And um, I thought, oh, God, that was awful. They'll never ask me back. But I'm still there after all this time. Yes. So I think in a way I I owe Don Quixote a debt of gratitude because if I'd actually sat down in my student days and read it as I should have done in Spanish, I don't think I would have had time (laughs) to do all the naughty things like write music for reviews and plays and stuff and learn a different sort of trade, um, and therefore I wouldn't have gone to Edinburgh, and therefore I wouldn't have got. I'm sorry, I haven't a clue. So that's my argument. You must have done Edinburgh, did you?
0: Yes, we did, yes.
2: yes I mean, it's a great melting pot, wasn't it? Mm. Back,
0: really? Although a much smaller melting pot. We were lucky, I It think. was.
2: I mean, now it's just out of, well, except for this year, actually, because it shrunk back again, of course. Mm. But it was getting, I think, out of control. It wasn't the shop window that it used to be.
0: No. When we were there, we were lucky. You know, everybody came to see us.
2: Yeah. Yes, absolutely, yeah.
0: Well, my experience of you is that you talk down your talent quite a lot. <laughs> I remember when we were doing Forbidden Broadway and you saying, OK, we've got a um, pianist, it's Paul Knight, he's going to play the piano during the show. And we all went, oh, aren't you going to play it Cole?" And you went, no, no, I know Nowhere near good enough to accompany people on stage. And I thought, well, hang on a minute, this is what
2: you've been doing for years and years and years. It needed somebody with more hands and fingers than I've got. I'm not really a West End musician and I'm very happy to do what I do and I enjoy what I do. And I think one of the things that life teaches you is what your limitations are. And because when you start off in the business, I think you probably did the same thing. You, you do everything, don't you? Everything comes your way. You think, right, there's a gap in the diary. I'll say yes to it. And after a bit, after a few years, particularly with me, it took a few years anyway. I thought, hmm, maybe I'm not <laughs> quite as good as everything. I'm sort of believe my own legend. You know, I used to enjoy doing the um, uh, the understudy rehearsals. For a Forbidden Broadway, mm. because, uh, you know, one could have a good go at it and, you know, enjoy playing it and so on. But Paul Knight was a sort of pianist. To warm up, he'd go on stage to the piano before the audience came in and he'd sit and play a, a sort of a sonata by Prokofiev or somebody. you think? yes, I don't think I'm quite up to this. <laughs> <laughs> you know, where's Middle C? There, yeah, you know, so.
0: OK, well, you know, Don Quixote.
2: Oh, right, yeah, that's how we say it in Croydon.
0: <laughs> I'm going to put that in there, in the original Spanish, with the original drawings and paintings. How marvellous. That goes in there safely. So we've got one
2: final thing to put in, Cole. OK, right. Well, this, this is, uh, I'm going back now to, to memory. You were talking about your, your your grandchildren. I don't have any grandchildren, but uh, we, we have a son, Rob, who is now very happily married, and we have a grand dog <laughs> <laughs> no children showing, but they've got a lovely dog. And anyway, so that's all fine. But Rob is a sax player and uh, he's a good, good player. And he was a very good player from his middle teens onwards, really. And a good jazzer as well. And he's a good sight reader and pre- generally a precocious little sod, you know. <laughs> and I know how it is. A lot of musicians do talk about their children as, you know, say what brilliant musicians they are and so on and get a bit boring. But he was and is indeed very good at it. And uh, um, what happened was it was Barry Cryer's 70th birthday. This is the memory that uh, I, I have. It's another mm. glowing memory. It was Barry's 70th birthday. And so some people got together and said, well, Barry, let's take over the Hackney Empire Theatre for the night and have a big birthday bash for you. And we'll get lots of acts on. We'll have a big fun party and what have you. And Barry was up for this. It was fine. And he said, well, can I have Colin's sell there as well because he's my pianist? And, of course, the yeah, I was there as well. And he's also, Barry, who's very fond of Rob, he said, would Rob like to come and play a bit of sax as well? And so we did a couple of Barry's Numbers uh, with me on the piano and Rob playing sax. And that was all fine and we rehearsed it. It was great. Now, also on the bill, opening the second half, was an absolutely manic band called Ronnie and the Rex. I don't know if you remember yes. Ronnie and the Rex. It was Ronnie Golden, mm-hmm. whose real name is Tony Demur, who's, who's a delightful chap and very, very funny. And this big sort of blues band. Made up mainly of psychopaths, I think. I mean, actually, they were, they were really nice guys, but they looked big and heavy, you know. Yeah. And um, Rob was saying, Oh, God, they're, they're, they're you know, really good. I wouldn't, wouldn't mind playing with them, you know. And Barry had said, Well, maybe, you know, maybe they'll, they'll let you sit in on a number or something, you know. But when we, when we, we heard them rehearsing, and I said to Rob, Well, frankly, obviously, you know, their time is very tight. They're not going to get around to, you know, using you really. Anyway, so we rehearsed our stuff with Barry. And then the guys, the wrecks, as it were, uh, one of them came up and said, Would your son like to play? in our set, not just one number, but playing the whole set. Wow. I said, Rob, do you want to play? He said, well, yeah. I said, I said, well, how will you, you know, rehearsing. I said, well, we've got the interval. I thought, oh, that's not very long. You know. <laughs> anyway, all credit to my son. He's 17 years old and he goes backstage with all these heavies, you know, and we do the first half and then he goes back in the interval and I'm out front watching the second half. And in the interval, they managed to talk him through all the numbers. So he had the music in front of him, but mm. he did it. Mike, he, he was just superb. Not, not only did he do it well, and they were all very pleased with him, but you know that thing that sax players do where they're standing in a row and they're doing blues music? Mm. They sort of go from side to side like that, you know. <laughs> and he was doing all that with them as well. I, it, it, he did choreography with it. And it was just one of those soft-hearted parental moments, mm. you know. And I had tears in the eyes and I thought, my goodness, he's, he's good at this. And it, and it was a lovely occasion. It was Barry's 70th birthday and uh, a very good time was had by all. Um, um, and it's about time really when I have to tell you a, a musician's joke having got as far as musicians because it's <laughs> only so fair. And it's not about sax players. But I heard this recently. I thought you might like it. It's the drummers have a rough time. Everybody's very rude about drummers, you know, mm. uh, which is very unfair because good drummers are really fantastic. Yeah, you know, I
0: know several that carry the tune.
2: Well, well yes, exactly. <laughs> you know, anyway, this drummer's being told by all his friends that he's, he he, he keeps losing his time. He's got no sense of timing, no sense of timing. He gets so depressed. He throws himself behind a bus. <laughs> you have to think about that, don't you? Really? No, not really. <laughs> it's a brilliant joke.
0: Very unkind, <laughs> it's yeah. It's very good. Yes, the only drummer joke I know is a drummer decides he really needs to learn to play another instrument because everybody's taking the mickey out of him all the time, so he's not a proper musician. And he goes to a music shop and he walks around for ages looking at all the instruments. But he said, can I help you? He said, yeah, yeah, look, I'm a drummer, but I'm thinking of playing something else. So actually what I want to do is I'm going I'm to buy that accordion and, and also I'll have that French horn. And the bloke says to him, well, you can have the radiator, but I'm afraid the fire extinguisher has to stay.
2: <laughs> yes, Lovely, yes. It's, it's so unkind because, I mean, I play with two hands. Most musicians do. But drummers are playing with two hands and two feet, you know, and it's Ooh. when they're good, they're just wonderful to watch, I think. Amazing. I remember doing a music for a radio play. I did a lot of music for radio plays, actually. I still do occasionally. But in those days, we used to actually go into a studio with real musicians and do it. But we, we needed a jazz trio. And I got Dudley Moore's drummer to come in, who was just delightful. And, that, you know, you just wanted to stop playing and watch him because he was just wonderful. That's one of the great treats I have found, actually of the people I've worked with, is that you get unexpected treats like that, whether it's doing a radio recording or you're doing live theatre or you're doing a review or whatever it might be. You know, We're all gypsies, aren't we? We're all moving around all the time. Mm. And every now and again, the sun really shines. And some of the best fun I've ever had actually has been doing radio recordings. Not a um, clue, yes, obviously, but also going into doing radio drama, going into uh, the old days. Mm. It used to be the World Service down at um, Bush House often i could pick my favorite musicians i could you yeah. know often they say oh you can have four musicians or something and the thing was that they could just do it you get in the best people they can just sit there and do yeah. it and you you know you've got them for a three-hour session and you've done it in half an hour and they say well that's <laughs> great what should we play now
0: or they said right pub yeah, or, yes <laughs> that's my experience of them many many happy memories and uh, it's been lovely to hear yours in fact i have to say colin thank you very much
2: well thank you for asking me it's been a real pleasure
0: You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my guest, Colin Sell. If you had fun, then you can subscribe to this podcast on ACAST or wherever you get your podcasts from. Please do rate the show before you go, and on some podcasting sites, you may be able to leave an erudite and witty review to encourage others to listen, for which we'll be eternally grateful. Well, not eternally, obviously, but a couple of weeks at least. You can follow our antics on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram if you follow either Fenton Stevens, that's me, or my time capsule, that's not me. And you can listen to the theme tune any time you fancy on Spotify. That's also me. Along with other compositions by Pass the Peas Music. This was a cast-off production. The producer was John Fenton Stevens. Right, I'm off to listen to the best of Flanders and Swan. I once had a whim and I had to obey it to buy a French horn in the second-hand shop. I polished it up and I started to play it in spite of the neighbours who begged me to stop. Tell do why I'm going to listen to them. I can sit here and sing them all. <laughs> if only we weren't breaching copyright. Ah, well... You'll just have to come around my house and I'll sing them for you. Bye.
1: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus,